0: So this morning, for a variety of reasons, I have chosen to take a break, break away a little bit from our study in the letter of James, and in light of the epic and devastating events that have dominated headlines in recent days, it brought me back to a psalm to which I always return to in unstable times. Its words give me help and hope. In times like these, in a short but significant article, now long forgotten, in uh, the April Fourth, nineteen ninety-four issue of U.S. News and World Report, there was a striking cover story that caught my attention. The cover story was itself entitled "In God We Trust." testing personal faith in a cynical age. Well, today, in the backwash of foundation-shaking events such as Columbine, Nickel Mine, Sandy Hook, and other numerous school shootings that we can only list, the tragedy of 9-11, subway and airport bombings, and a continual stream of headlines declaring yet another terrorist attack, And more recently, the tragic massacre of almost 60 people with hundreds more injured at an outdoor concert in Las Vegas, these same graphic images appear again. And that question of that headline appears again. Children, teens, adults, the images splattered across your tablet or the internet huddled huddled together, desperately clinging to each other and decidingly crying out for comfort and some semblance of security in a crumbling world. All of which has created a climate of fear that has spread throughout the entire nation, if not globally. But it's not just this rise in crime that has people reeling. The all but complete erosion of the very pillars that undergird our society Is causing the rapid disintegration of any trace of confidence in us. Peruse the media, surf the net, the picture looks bleak. We can't trust the government. The numerous controversies surrounding our own political leaders have pretty much seen to that. We can't trust the media. Fact checking, truth telling is all but an instant memory for most social media outlets, and the idea of objective reporting of the news is but one step shy of extinct. We can't trust the courts. The infamous holes in our criminal justice system are all too real to us, allowing those who can afford the best lawyers to circumvent justice. We can't trust our children's heroes. Secular musicians seduce the next generation of leaders with immoral and unconscionable sentiments. Even Christian artists fail miserably to model moral and spiritual integrity and excuse such virtues as impossible ideals, which no one should be held up to. Character has become basically a meaningless, loosely defined trait. And we can't trust the organized churches. So-called godly representatives, when year after year, new charges of breaches of integrity, sexual misconduct, and financial mismanagement sweep the headlines, and we can't trust the family. Abuses mount, while at the same time false accusations soar, until it's near impossible to discern what is true, and there doesn't seem to be much left to the word family at all. It's been redefined. The old cover story that I quoted earlier was directly on point. Indeed, this is a cynical age in which our personal faith is tested. Every headline, in every headline, every news brief, in every article, it seems that we are faced with the ancient but penetrating question of Psalm 11, verse 3, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Now, although that question was posed centuries ago, we encounter it almost daily, don't we? And it's got us scared. The people of God, the church itself, seems to be at times ill-equipped to deal with the reality of the age. We're tempted to run. We're tempted to panic. We're tempted to give up and stop trying to stem the tide. We're tempted to harbor a dim view of the future. What can the righteous do? The psalmist asks. We don't want pat answers, and we despise deluded solutions. But the fact of the matter is, and David himself would be the first one to tell us, that when the foundations are falling... There's only one refuge, there's only one source, resource, there's only one place where we can be assured of stability. And today, then, let's let the word of God through the pen of David give us some clarity, shall we? In the opening line of the same psalm that asks that cynical question, If the foundations are destroyed, what shall the righteous do? David gives us some straight talk. Locate Psalm 11 in your Bibles with me, would you? Psalm 11 and verse 1. David says, in the Lord, I take refuge. In the Lord, I take refuge. Now, most of us knew the answer, didn't we? To the question, if the foundations are destroyed, what shall the righteous do? In the Lord, I take refuge. You knew that answer, didn't you? We could say it in our sleep. But how many of us really, really, really accept it and get our heads around it and our hearts around it? As Christians, we can rattle off the fact faster than someone can finish the question. But how does it affect the way that you and I deal with the world around us on a daily, weekly basis? How does it color your interpretation of last week's newscast about the Las Vegas shooting among all the other things that are going on in the world? Does it give you peace to know that in the Lord you can take refuge? Now today I'm not going to give you a long dissertation on how to live in a cynical age. What I really want to say is just a couple of pointed things. And I guess I really need to hear them for myself more than anything. So you can all take a snooze and I'll just preach it to me. (laughs) Because the temptation for me even, and I'm sure many of you as well, to lose confidence these days is very, very real. The anxiety of imagining what my grandchildren are going to face in 10 or 15 years can easily drive me nuts. What can I do about it? As you and I meditate on this psalm for a few more moments, I I pray a couple of statements will really settle in for us. They're not fancy statements. They're not eloquent. They're not really that complex. They're not going to make you sit back and say, whoa, that's heavy. But I guarantee you won't stand up and say, whoa, that's easy either. Because they're not easy. It's never easy to stay confident when everything around you is falling apart. Never. But it is possible. It's not easy, but it's possible. Ask David, when the foundations are falling, how should we react? Well, the first thing David tells us here in Psalm 11 is refuse to flee. Refuse to flee. Verse 1 In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, Flee as a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow, they make ready their arrow upon the string to shoot in darkness at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Scholars have tried to identify this time period in David's life in many various ways. Some say it was when Saul threatened his life and had him on the run. Others claim that it was during his son Absalom's rebellion. It's impossible to know the specific historical setting of this this psalm, but suffice it to say that David was in a really bad way. He was desperate He was in danger, his confidence was being challenged, his options were minimal, and his own ability was crippled, and his friends were not much help. They were cynical about his chances, and they counseled him to get out while he still had the chance. And who would have blamed him? The text indicates that the very foundations were crumbling all around him. His government was in shambles. The moral climate was in upheaval. The political atmosphere was charged. And he, David, was the target. Faced with the option of running and holding up somewhere until the heat blew over, his opening words are very significant when he says, "'In the Lord I take refuge.'" This mere use of the word refuge stresses David's human insecurity. He's got to find some place to hide, a refuge, because he was helpless and he wanted to flee, but not to some human fortress. When the foundations are falling, there's only one place to flee, my friends. It's the fortress of faith. David knew that truth well. He repeated it over and over again in his writings throughout the Psalms. He describes God in words like a refuge in Psalm 46.1, a shelter in Psalm 61, verses three and four, a strong refuge in Psalm 71, a fortress in Psalm 91, a strength, shield, and stronghold in Psalm 18. See, David lived these truths every day of his life. He must have passed them on to his son Solomon who wrote in Proverbs 14, 26, in the fear of the Lord, there is strong confidence and his children will have, what? Refuge. See, there's always this temptation to get out, isn't there? When the going gets tough, sometimes even the tough get going. And not always in the right direction, mind you. Instead of of a last resort, fleeing the situation has, I think now, become the first line of defense. For instance, a marriage gets a little demanding. Someone hits the road. Conflict at the office. The door is swinging shut. I'm just going to go find somewhere else to work. The church makes a change that isn't very well accepted. Well, there's another church down the road. I think I'll go there. You see, it's happening not just amongst the irreligious, but it's happening amongst us, the church of Jesus Christ. Conflict resolution has taken on a new face. Rather than sticking it out and making it work, in a very large sense, it has become either stick your head in the sand and ignore it, or turn your back and run. Instead of walking by faith, many people flee at the first sign of trouble. Forget trusting in God to work it out. It goes something like this. Listen, if I can't handle this, I'm out. I don't want to wait around. Life's too short to be miserable. I want to be happy. Is this striking a chord? Look at verse 2. For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They make ready their arrow upon the string to shoot in darkness at the upright in heart. In the Old Testament, the bow and the arrow was the most powerful and efficient means an army had to attack and destroy. Very accurate, very skillful. Today, it serves as a perfect picture of how the enemies of God attack his people. It says they bend the bow. You know, in those days when they would string a bow, they'd have to step on it and bend it, making themselves ready. And they make ready their arrow. They prepare this instrument, which is going to penetrate and kill. And they shoot in the darkness at the upright. You see, there's this chronological strategy of attack here. They bend, they set, and they shoot and the enemies of the righteous are very adept at that. They zero in on the very underpinnings of an upright society. One by one, step by step, they seek to eliminate them until all the foundations are destroyed. And then people panic in fear. I read a story about Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher said it was the biggest day of his life. He had recently come to London to pastor a church that was in decline. Prior to his arrival, the sanctuary had been two-thirds empty on an average Sunday, but within weeks of Spurgeon's coming, it was filled to overflowing, and another service had to be added. The crowds kept on streaming in. And another Sunday service was scheduled, and it was full that very first Sunday. Charles Haddon Spurgeon was the kind of communicator who comes along only once in a century, perhaps only once in a millennium. As a result, the church board made the decision to tear down this old building and build a new expanded auditorium. In the meantime, it became necessary for them to find another building in which to meet while they were building this new auditorium. So the London Surrey Music Hall was secured and the first Sunday service was scheduled. October 19th, not very long from now, in 1856, mind you, 1856, the crowds began lining up at two o'clock in the afternoon and the service wasn't even scheduled to start until 7 p.m., And by the time the service started in the hall, all of the 10,000 seats were filled. Now, that's a megachurch in 1856. 10,000 seats were full to hear this 22-year-old preacher who had taken London by a storm. The singing of the 10,000 voices was wonderful and still... And this whole stillness and quiet swept over the building as Spurgeon made his way to the pulpit to lead the massive congregation in prayer. But just as Spurgeon began to pray, a man in the back of the gallery jumped up and yelled, fire! Now picture that. 10,000 people. Someone else cried out, the balcony's falling! And within two seconds, the entire auditorium was in pandemonium. It was panic. People began rushing for the aisles, running for the stairs. Spurgeon immediately tried to get the attention of the crowd, calling for calm. But panic had swept the hall so swiftly and so quickly that no one was listening to him anymore. And within seconds, the London Surrey Music Hall had gone from a place of worship to absolute chaos. Panic had done its work. Everywhere Spurgeon looked, there was anarchy as people's worst fears dominated their behavior and the tidal wave rushed to get out of the building. Older people were thrown to the floor, children were separated from their parents, and when it was all over, seven people were dead, 28 had been critically injured, and it was a wonder that 70 hadn't been killed. The tragedy was compounded when the truth became known. Those seven people didn't die from smoke inhalation. There was no smoke. They didn't die from fire. There was no fire. So, what killed those seven people? Panic killed them. Panic is a powerful force that can sweep into our lives and catapult us into irrational behavior. Panic can immediately lead us into wrong conclusions. Webster says that panic is a sudden, unreasoning terror often accompanied by mass flight. All that is required for panic to set in is for people to lead with their reacting hearts rather than their reasoning heads. I heard that In the four weeks after that shooting at Columbine so many years ago, high schools in Maine closed something like 23 times due to threats of violence. Anyone who has flown since 9-11 has experienced the probing security checks, the body and bag searches, and the profiling stares of the people working. Now, I realize that in the wake of such tragedies, we must act responsibly. No question about it. But what have we become? What have we become? I mean, really. Just so you guys know, the elders and the pastors and I had somebody come in and do an active shooter training here so we would know how to respond in the event that somebody came in here and started shooting the place up. This is the kind of thing that we have to do now. What if we become a community, a society, a nation driven by fear? People who flee when no one is pursuing. That, according to Scripture, is what happens to a nation who no longer fears God. Proverbs 28.1 says, The wicked flee when no one is pursuing, but the righteous are bold as a lion. Leviticus chapter 26. In speaking to Israel, when the nation was forming, in verses 6 to 8, we read these words, I shall also grant peace in the land so that you may lie down with no one making you tremble. I shall also eliminate harmful beasts from the land with no, and no sword will pass through your land. But you will chase your enemies and they will fall before you by the sword. Five of you will chase a hundred and a hundred of you will chase 10,000 and your enemies will fall before you by the sword. Verse 14 says, but if you do not obey me, listen what's gonna happen. And do not carry out all these commandments that I've given you. If instead you reject my statutes and your soul abhors my ordinances so as to not carry out my commandments and so break my covenant, I in turn will do this to you, says God. I will appoint over you a sudden terror, a consumption and a fever that will waste away the eyes and cause your soul to pine away also... You will sow your seed uselessly for your enemies will eat it up. I will set my face against you so that you will be struck down before your enemies and those who hate you will rule over you and you will flee when no one is pursuing. A few weeks ago, I was in Walmart and I was shopping, grocery shopping, and I had been there way too long. Let's put it that way. I just put the last item, I, I kid you not. I had just put the last item in my basket and this horrendous alarm went off right over my head, so loud that I thought I was gonna go deaf. I mean, it was loud. Lights are flashing, the alarms are going off, and now everybody's going for the door. I'm like, you gotta be kidding me. I just got done. We couldn't take the baskets out. So wisely, I funneled mine over next to a register and left it there and left the building, okay? Everybody's going to the other end of the building and nobody's let in. They had, had, you know, first responders and officers blocking the doors. Nobody could even be near the building. Fire trucks came, police came, everybody came. We're standing there waiting, 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 what's going on? They had to go in and do a sweep of that building like three or four times before they finally let us back in A long time later. Still don't know what happened, but it wasn't real. Now, as I say, we need to be responsible. All these people fleeing the building and no one is pursuing. That's what happens when a nation leaves the Lord as their refuge. When we marginalize God and we push him to the edge of our existence, the result is painfully obvious. As Joel Belz wrote, you don't have to see the result as his hand of wrath. You don't have to say that it's his hand of wrath. All you have to do is simply realize that this is what happens when God withdraws his hand of grace. He doesn't have to pour out his wrath actively. He just takes his hand away from protecting." The enemies have encircled, my friends. They continue to bend and set and shoot. They take advantage of the darkness and the shadows. They attack from behind the protection of things like political voices, media assaults, and psychological deceptions. And they won't stop until every inch of the foundation of this country, our lives, and Christianity itself is destroyed. And do you know who's behind that ultimately? Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 12 says, Our fight is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers and authorities and the power of this world's darkness against the spiritual powers of evil in the heavenly world. You believe in evil? You should because it's very real. Satan is very real. He is very active and he is very much alive. The words of Psalm 10, just the Psalm before Psalm 11, describe what I think is an uncanny likeness to Satan's tactics. Look at Psalm 10, verses 8 to 10. Psalm 10, verses eight to 10. See if this doesn't sound like Satan's tactics to you. He crouches, he bows down, and the unfortunate fall by his mighty ones. He says to himself, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. Arise, O Lord, O God, lift up your hand and do not forget. This is the prayer of David now. Do not forget the afflicted. You see, so, what can the righteous do if the foundations are destroyed? Well, what they should not do is panic. The antidote to panic, writes Steve Ferrar, is faith. Not blind faith, not faith based on hearsay, but true faith. Faith based on the authority of Scripture and the integrity of God's name and his character. Amen? We have a choice. We don't have to panic. Instead, we can choose to anchor our minds and our emotions in the reality of God and who he is. You got to remember that when David was stuck between uh, a rock and a hard place, he had only one place to turn. He refused to panic and he refused to flee. His refuge was in God. I mean, he did run away at some point in time. But there were lots of other reasons why. He wasn't running in fear for his life because his trust was in God. And he knew that God would preserve him. Proverbs 18.10 says, The name of the Lord is a strong tower, but the righteous runs into it and is safe. But that's so simplistic, you're thinking. Well, not true. Simple, maybe, but not simplistic. When truth is no longer respected, when justice is no longer practiced, when fraud and violence have taken the place of honesty and honor, when error prevails, and when character and integrity and virtue no longer afford us any security whatsoever, there will be those that will argue that our only course is to withdraw from society and leave the world to its own devices. I'm hearing those things today. But the fact is that if we seek refuge in anything other than the rock of our salvation, we will be fugitives forever. We will never stop running. We'll never stop fearing. We'll never start living. God has you and me in this time and in this place for a reason. What is our mission? What is our mission? Please tell me what our mission is. Absolutely, go into all the world and preach the gospel, right? Make disciples, baptize them, teach them. Go into all the world. As you go into the world, Jesus said, you're supposed to be, he didn't say retreat. Retreat. He didn't say flee to the mountains. As you're going into the world, make disciples. It assumes that we're going to be going into the world. When the foundations fall, refuse to flee. Don't panic. David says, remember, the Lord is in his holy temple. Look at Psalm 11, verse four. The Lord is in his holy temple and the Lord's throne is in heaven. According to Hebrews chapter 4, verses 15 and 16, that temple is always accessible to you and I as believers in Christ. Is that right? This is what it says. It's always accessible to his children. Hebrews 4, 15 and 16. For we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet as without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. We don't retreat, we go to the source and the source is the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven and we have open and free access as his children, amen? Amen. So refuse to flee. And the second thing David says here in Psalm 11 is rest in the faith, rest in. In the faith, look at verse four, uh, verse four and five. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold, his eyelids test the sons of men. The Lord tests the righteous and the wicked, and the one who loves violence, his soul hates. Upon the wicked, he will rain snares, fire and brimstone, and burning wind will be the portion of their cup. In other words, says one author. When crisis comes upon us, we have two choices. We can choose panic or we can choose faith. Dr. Martin Lloyd Jones was one of the greatest preachers of this century. He pastored at Westminster Chapel for many, many years, and he was also one of the greatest minds of this century. As a young medical doctor, he had skills and intellect so great that he was in line to be the next physician to the Queen. But at the age of 27 years old, he left medicine to go into the pastorate. And it wasn't long before he was in demand all over the world to preach and to conduct conferences. You want to hear what Lloyd-Jones, Martin Lloyd-Jones' definition of faith was? Faith, he said, is a refusal to panic. Now, you may have expected something more profound or exhausted, uh, exhaustive from somebody like that. But may I suggest to you that in the tough situations of your life, in my life, this is exactly how we apply faith. Faith is a refusal to panic. Why? Read verse four again. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven, and He beholds. His eyelids test the righteous and the wicked. He sees it all. Victor Hugo once said, have courage for the great sorrows of life and patience for the small ones. And when you have finished your daily task, go to sleep in peace because God is awake. He's awake. He's not sleeping. His eyes are wide open. He sees He hears, he knows, he scrutinizes everyone and everything. To David's counselors, it may have looked like Saul or Absalom may be reigning ruthlessly on the earth, but David knew the Lord was in his holy temple. At times, it may look like the world is out of control to you and me, that it's busting apart at the seams. Oh, my goodness, what is happening here? But remember the facts Psalm 10, verse 16 says, the Lord is king forever and ever. David's words are very appropriate for us, very relevant to us. He understood how to rest securely in the faith when everything around him was falling apart. We need that wisdom that David had. Why? Because the same kinds of conditions prevail for us today. So what can we do? Well, do what David did. Confide in his sovereignty. That's number one. The Lord's in his temple. He knows what's going on. pastor was standing at the door and a young kid came out of Sunday school and struck up a conversation just to find out. He wanted to find out what was going on in Sunday school, what the child was learning. So he said, you know what? If you could tell me something God can do, I'll I'll give you... I'll give you a gift card to your favorite restaurant. Thoughtfully the boy said, Pastor, if you could tell me something God can't do, I'll give you the restaurant. <laughs> Cute story, but let me ask you a question. Can you tell me something God can't do? Now, now, please don't give me something like he can't make a rock big enough that he himself cannot lift. Or he can't sin. You know, there's logical limitations to things, moral restrictions that God has even submitted himself to. But there is nothing in the universe that takes God by surprise. Nothing blindsides the Savior. Not Hitler, not ISIS, not Kim Jong-un, not the shooter in Las Vegas, not your car breaking down, not your health going south. He wasn't, God wasn't dozing off when the subway in London got bombed. He wasn't busy when your daughter got pregnant or your cousin got cancer. He wasn't distracted by a text message when Bill Clinton, Barack Obama, or Donald Trump got elected president. As Eugene Peterson renders verse four in the message, but God hasn't moved to the mountains. His holy address hasn't changed. He's in charge as always. His eyes taking everything in. His eyelids unblinking, examining Adam's unruly brood inside and out. He's not missing a thing. And he's not. He sees it all. He knows it all. And he understands it all. And we don't have all the answers as to why. He allows these crazy things to go on, these tragic things, these evil things. Why? We don't have that answer. And you know, and I'm getting so sick and tired of everybody giving an answer. Even pastors, they feel like everybody's got to weigh in on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook about why the Las Vegas shooting happened. I I refuse to weigh in. I'll be the first one to tell you, I have no idea what God was thinking by allowing that. But I know one thing, he's God, he's sovereign, and he loves me. And he loved all of those people that were there. Nothing escaped his notice. Jesus Christ was sent to die for every single person, even the shooter. That's not to say that they're all going to accept him, because they obviously don't. But the point is, is that he has. But I don't know. We will know one day, but all I know is what David says here the Lord is in his holy temple, and he sees it all. It's the only thing that I can rest in. Otherwise, it's all random, it's all chance. And be very depressed. We can be confident that he is sovereign. So confide in his sovereignty. Further, we should consider his scrutiny. In verses four and five, the second part, his eyes behold, his eyelids test the sons of man, the righteous and the wicked. And the one who loves violence, his soul hates. Listen, Proverbs 15, three say, the eyes of the Lord are in every place watching all the evil and the good. So in one sense, that fact that he sees everything kind of consoles us, doesn't it? Because he knows the dangers we face and he knows the needs that you and I have. But in another sense, it kind of convicts us, doesn't it? Because he also means, it also means that you and I can't hide one thing from him. He scrutinizes both the righteous and the wicked. His eyes behold. His eyelids test. That's an interesting statement, isn't it? His eyelids test. Read fine print in your bulletin. You'll be squinting your eyes, won't you? And that's what, that's really the picture that David's giving here. He's narrowing his focus, his eyelids test. He's got a gaze at all of us. that's penetrating, it's fixed. He sees into the very foundation of our nature and who we are. I read something about an elderly grandfather who was very wealthy, and because he was going deaf, he decided to get some hearing aids. Two weeks later, he stopped at the store where he bought the hearing aids, told the manager he could now pick up conversations quite easily, even in the next room. And your relatives must be very happy to know that you can hear so much better. Well, I haven't even told them yet. He said, I've just been sitting around listening, and you know what? I've changed my will twice. <laughs> and God's vision is like that man's hearing, right? He sees it, and we don't think he does, and we act as though he doesn't see a thing. And we think we can hide our sins from him. And we think that he's blind to all the violence and suffering in the world. And I've got news for you, my friends. He sees it all. Hebrews 4.13 says, Nothing in all the world can be hidden from God. Everything is clear and lies open before him. And to him we must explain the way that we have lived. He doesn't overlook the violence in the world. He hates it. Personally and utterly hates it. Look at verse 5. And the one who loves violence, what's it say? His soul hates. It's a strong word used of God. Contrast that now with verse 7 that says the Lord is righteous and he loves righteousness. See, hate's a very powerful word, especially when it's used of God. God. It says here, God hates the one who loves violence and delivers dire consequences to them. But when a people or a nation persists in the pursuit and the exaltation of cruelty, injustice, oppression, and violence, the Bible says that we become in danger of the wrath of God who turns his face away from us and we become then the object of it, of his wrath. And even here it says hate because it's against his perfect and holy nature. It's not just the perpetrator of violence that God hates. It says here, read the words. Read them. What's it say? It's the one who loves violence. That ought to strike a chord with us. If the events we have witnessed in recent history show us anything, it reveals that as a nation, we have twisted, we have this very twisted love affair with Violence. Go to GameStop. Check out all the video games that everyone's using. Probably some of your kids have them. And we justify that by claiming it's not real. It's fantasy. But the word of God through the pen of David didn't make a distinction. Read it again. It says, The one who loves violence, his soul hates. Why? Because anyone who is in love with violence doesn't have the holy holy spirit guiding them in that particular instance does it You see, God rules, God reigns, and God will repay. Violence will not continue forever. So when the foundations around us fall, we can rest in the faith by confiding in his sovereignty, considering his scrutiny of all, and then by confirming his security. In verse six, upon the wicked, he will rain snares. Fire and brimstone and burning wind will be the portion of their cup. Make no mistake about it, God will deliver. That's putting it lightly if you read those verses. And you want to know something? Evil is temporary. Can you say that again? Evil is temporary. God will deliver. He did it in Noah's time. He did it with Sodom and Gomorrah. And he will do it again. 2 Peter chapter 2 and verses 9 and 10 say this. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. And especially those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority. The Lord is in His holy temple. There has never been a more opportune time for you and I to minister to people's fears. They're scared, the foundations are crumbling. And when the foundations are falling, take David's advice, refuse to flee, rest in the faith, and finally, remember your future. Look at verse seven. For the Lord is righteous, he loves righteousness, the upright will behold his face. What more need be said? The upright will behold his face. And who, is, who are the upright? Somebody tell me. Who are the upright? the righteousness clothed with the righteousness of Christ, right? For as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even those who believe on his name. That's our future. Christ didn't pay that price on the cross for nothing. He became sin who knew no sin so that we could become the righteousness of God in him. Right? Those who receive Christ and embrace him by faith are clothed in his righteousness. And we're not under judgment anymore. And there's something a whole lot worse than death You know what's worse than, than death on this earth? It's the eternal death that people experience when they die on this earth when they don't have the righteousness of Christ as their clothing. And you don't get to make the choice after. We make the choice now. Jesus said, come to me. It's an incredible thought that we can behold his face someday. 1 John 3 says it, Father has loved us so much that we're called children of God, and we really are his children. The reason the people in the world do not know us is that they have not known him. But dear friends, now that we are children, now that we are, we are children of God, and we have not yet been shown what it will be, what we will be in the future, but know this: that when Christ comes, we will be like him, because we will see him as he really is. As 1 John 3, 1 and 2. So you know, let's get out of the Henny Penny attitude. And you guys are all, I know, you're all saying, half of you are saying, what? Who's Henny Penny? <laughs> it's a children's story that I grew up with and Henny Penny ran around saying, the sky is falling, the sky is falling. Isn't that what people are doing? The antidote to panic, writes Steve Ferrar, is faith, not blind faith. Not faith based on hearsay, but true faith. Faith based on the authority of Scripture, the integrity of God's character and His name. We have a choice. We don't have to panic. Instead, we can choose to anchor our minds and emotions in the reality of God. I just requoted that from before. Because it's true. This is what Jesus said. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. And I will give you rest. He also said, and I will get these things I have spoken to you that in me you might have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage, Jesus said, I have overcome the world. He didn't say I will overcome the world. He didn't say I am overcoming the world. What did he say? I have overcome the world. It's as good as done. And this is the victory that has overcome The world our faith. Who is the one who overcomes the world? He who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. I have one question to leave you with. Do you have faith? Let's pray. Lord, I pray that there's not a soul in this place or within earshot of this message that will walk away without faith. I pray from the bottom of my heart, dear Lord Father, that before this day is closes, before people put their heads on their pillows, that they will deal with the issue that we all must face in our hearts. Who is Jesus? Who is he to me? May no one leave this building without wrestling with that issue and I pray Lord God that they would come to know that Jesus is the one who loved them. He is the God who loved them, who died for them and who rose again on their behalf to give them abundant life in eternity. That is the greatest gift of grace that we could ever imagine. And I pray, dear Lord, if there's somebody in this place this morning that has never done that, that in the quietness of their heart and soul right now that they would bow their head and their heart and just say the words, Lord, what I just heard is right. I believe it. I'm sorry for the things that I have done that have separated me from you. And I believe that you sent your son Jesus to die on the cross, to forgive my sins, to rise from the grave in order to bestow upon me his life. So I receive it, Lord, and I ask you to become my savior and my leader and my Lord. Guide me for the rest of my life into safe harbor. For Jesus' sake, I pray, amen.